the great Prince of Preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, there is sorrow in everything except for eating pancakes. Hopefully breakfast was great. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit in this place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be bound together in unity. Your word says whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. And so thank you that we can sit at your table, that we can enjoy your presence. We thank you that your table is a guaranteed place of encounter. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would make known to us the truths of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we start a brand new series on hospitality. Over the next three weeks together, we'll be looking at the church as a family, the church around a table, and the church as a way of life. This morning, I want to talk about the church as a family. Anyone here grow up in a small town? Any small town folks? I am the only one except for Derek. Okay. Uh, to say, yes, to say that I grew up in a small town is a massive understatement. I grew up in a very small town. And for better or for worse, it shaped me. It made me who I am. And ironically, it made me a bit of a vagabond. It made me a bit of a wanderer. Like I grew up dreaming of the day that I would finally move out of my small town. I dreamt of, of moving to a different city and seeing different places and towns and people. And I remember being so excited in my last year of high school for the time that I would finally move out and go to college. The best part for me is I was moving to Florida, sun 365 days a year near the beach. I mean, it doesn't get better. Um, I remember sitting in my bed leading up to going to college, staring at the ceiling at night, just dreaming of what it would be like to go to college and leave my small town. I think I was more excited uh, than just to experience the beach. I think I was longing for something. I think I was uh, looking for uh, an experience of independence. And you know, this, this, um, this is a pretty normal experience, whether you grew up in a small town or if you grew up in Surrey, British Columbia, I think it's pretty normal for people to grow up and leave home. This is what it means to become an adult in our day and age and culture. See, moving away is part of the process. In the modern West, people grow up and leave home and we celebrate this. This was not a reality in the first century uh, during the time of Jesus. People didn't celebrate the fact that you left your family and you moved away. To see this, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21. This is what it says. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So one day, Jesus is walking along the beach in Galilee. And as he's walking in the sand, he sees these two guys along with a crew of fishermen, and they're preparing their nets as you do, and all that that entails. And as Jesus is walking in the sand along the seashore, he stops dead in his tracks, and he starts a conversation with these fishermen. Now, some point in that conversation, uh, James and John decide to leave their family. 
Now, they just met this guy. They have never met Jesus before this moment. And they just, in a few moments, decide to leave the family business and their father behind in an instant. Like, this is like a split-second decision that has profound implications for their lives and for their community. See, it was their responsibility to carry on the family business. And they just walk away. In their culture, this would not only be shocking, it would be downright offensive. To abandon one's father was one of the greatest forms of betrayal in a strong group society. You know, in a way, I relate to this. My dad was an oyster fisherman in our small town. And uh, there was no hope in the world for me to continue on the family business. Like, look at me, guys. I, I could never be an oyster fisherman. I just don't physically have what it takes. But James and John don't have that luxury. They don't have the option of just opting out of carrying on the father's business. It was their responsibility because the future of its success rested on their shoulders and they walked away. The crazy thing in this text is Jesus seems to be okay with this reality. But Craig Keener points out that such abandonment could easily bring dishonor on them in their community. See, they would have been seen as traitors, as those who just abandoned their own father. Joseph Hellerman writes, For Jesus' contemporaries in the ancient world, the betrayal of family was the greatest of relational disasters. So no one in the first century would have read this story or this passage as the sentimental moment where James and John decide to become followers of Jesus. No, they would have read this as the shocking and offensive moment where James and John abandon their own family and leave their father to fend for himself. This goes against the biblical command to honor one's father and mother, and they walk away. Now, their father is, is left in the dust in this story, and they leave to follow Jesus. It's as if there's something about the call of Jesus that, that calls James and John to abandon their own family. To understand this further, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 12. It says this in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, he's mid-sermon, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, interrupt his sermon, uh, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers. Now, I, I've got to say, this is kind of rude. Like, if I were there with Jesus, I might take him aside and say, Jesus, don't be so unchristlike. This is not a good look for you. Like, you're, you're saying, hey, like, forget my mother and brothers. I'm preaching this sermon. Who is my mother and my brothers? He's literally ignoring his own family. Um, I remember being a kid, and uh, my dad would do the most embarrassing things. And, and when, when they do something like this in public, it's like way worse, right? And my dad would do things like, um, and this is like all true, my dad would get a mannequin, this plastic woman, and he would dress her out like a 70s, you know, biker, put her in his hot rod and drive around town with this plastic woman in his car. My dad would ride his Harley with ape hangers on it without a shirt and just a leather vest. And I would be out uh, downtown in our small little community and my friends and I would be out skateboarding and, and my dad would fly by in his hot rod or his Harley. And uh, my friends would be like, Dan, there's your dad. And I would look off to the distance and be like, who is my father? Like, I don't know that man. <laughs> this is what Jesus is doing. His mom and brothers are outside and he is like, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It says this in verse 49. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister 
and mother. Now, I have to admit, it is very weird for Jesus to point to a bunch of young Jewish men and to say, here are my sisters and my mother. But the point that he is making is that his disciples are not just apprentices of a rabbi. Rather, they are students and family members of this community that he is forming. See, Jesus is not just uh, calling uh, these individuals his family. He is redefining who his family truly is. Jesus is calling his followers to form an alternative family. We see this repeated over and over in the stories in the gospel. He's calling us here in, in the 21st century to become brothers and sisters. In fact, the term brothers and sisters is used just in Paul's letters alone 139 times. This, this term for brothers and sisters shows up in the New Testament scriptures 342 times alone. See, Joseph Hellerman writes, no image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family. We see this most clearly in Jesus' most common title for God, which was Father. Jesus is calling us to follow him as a family. In 250 AD, uh, Kyperion of Carthage said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God for his father. What he meant is that to relate to God as father is to relate to his children as brothers and sisters. Or as the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love the father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And, and Jesus here is, is again calling us to follow him as family. And today we, we mainly mean this metaphorically, like, hello, brother, how are you doing, sister? But in the first century, they took it quite literally. The early church followed Jesus as family. We see this in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. See, the first Christians, the early followers of Jesus, took his teaching on family literally. They devoted themselves to studying the word together, eating together, meeting together, praying together, and even sacrificially loving one another by meeting their needs. And they did this because that's what families do. They love one another. They gather. They eat together. They sacrificially serve one another. This is what families do do. The phrase in this passage, devoted themselves, means they committed themselves to each other and to a way of life, which we'll talk about next week. In other words, church wasn't a weekend event they attended. It was a family they belonged to. This wasn't optional for them. They devoted themselves together because they believed that they were formed as a family around Jesus. Community was not optional for a disciple of Jesus. We find no example of a, a lone Christian either in the New Testament scriptures or in the first 312 years of, of church history. See, our world is dying for an image of church that is truly family-like. The author and philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about being a young boy estranged from his father. 
without a father figure in his life, he used to love going to the Catholic mass services just for the ending benediction. And the ending benediction, if you're not familiar with, with liturgy, is where the, the priest will stand with his hands raised up high and perform a blessing over the congregation. He loved going to these services to get this blessing because he was looking for someone in his culture to be a father figure who would pronounce blessing over his life. And I think like Jamie Smith, many of us long for this. We long for the blessing and connection that comes from being a family. See, it's as if Jesus was serious when he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. See, our love for one another and the way that we do church as family is our greatest witness to a watching world. So this fall, we are launching communities as Port Cal's church. And what will that look like is groups of about 10 to 12 people who are gather around a table like we are this morning. And uh, they'll gather around um, bread and wine. They'll meet together. They'll read scripture. They'll pray for one another and encourage one another. They'll live in community together as family, and together they will put the, the week's teaching into practice. They'll commit to a way of life together. Again, more on that next week. And as we do this over several years or maybe even decades, we will become like Jesus together. This was Jesus' vision for community. This was Jesus' vision for discipleship. And Joseph Hellerman, the author of When the Church Was a Family, writes this, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term Interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together, or we do not grow much at all. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time together this morning is introduce you to the five stages of community life, or you can call them the five stages of family life. This is stage one. Stage one is known as the honeymoon stage. If you're married, you're probably well acquainted with this stage, especially if you've married a long time. Um, this is where you see everything in rose-colored glasses. Everything is incredible and amazing and fantastic. And uh, this is when you join a group and you're like, hey, this is, this is kind of fun. You get together with other people, you eat food, there's good wine, you're, you're hanging out, maybe like you're really getting to know some people and like you cry and it's just like amazing and exhilarating. You've never done that before. And you're like, this is the greatest community that has ever existed in the last 2000 years, period. This is awesome. Welcome to the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon sta stage lasts anywhere from three months to two years, but it doesn't last eventually you realize that your level of excitement is not sustainable. And then you move on to the second stage, which is apathy. This is where you start to go through the motions. You, you show up, you're there, you're still present, but maybe you're a bit apathetic. And th as things begin to level out, you're maybe thinking to yourself, I guess I'm not as into community as I thought I was, or at least as I was six months ago. And you begin to show up, but maybe less often. And uh, maybe you lax up on, on some of the, the practices your community is a part of. You know, you're not really doing the reading as much. And you become apathetic. 
And eventually you enter the third stage, which is conflict. And if you're married, you're probably well acquainted with this one as well. Uh, this is where all of your stuff, or as some of um, different philosophers would call your shadow side, comes to the surface. As you're in proximity with other people, you can't run from your shadow side or your character defects. And so maybe in your frustration, you're thinking, man, what are we even doing here, man? Like this community used to be the best. We used to cry together. Now we just like sit around and, and answer some questions and go home. Like nobody's bringing good wine anymore. We don't, you know, cry, you know, what is it? What are we even doing here, man? Like this used to be awesome. And um, maybe at this stage, you're starting to think, is community even for me? Or is this community even for me? And at this point, you have to make one of two decisions. On one hand, you can give up on community, and maybe you move to another community, or maybe you give up on community altogether. Or you make the decision to move on to acceptance, which is stage four. In acceptance, you think to yourself, okay, you know what? This group is messy. It is not perfect because people are messy and imperfect. Newsflash, okay? And, um, and you think to yourself, okay, sometimes community is amazing and exhilarating, and other times it's very difficult. But I am going to stay and choose to love and walk with these people through the long haul. And as you stay together and choose to walk together through the stuff of life, you begin to grow. And as you grow, you move into health. This is stage five. And in health, we grow in maturity, uni unity, and Christ-likeness. In this fi final stage, it begins to feel like the honeymoon stage all over again. All of the warm fuzzies, the rose-colored glasses, they come crashing back into your life, and you think, ah, we have finally arrived. The bad news is, is you usually move from these stages over and over again. It is not about arrival. It is about constantly moving through the stages. The profound reality of these five stages is most people only make it to a bit about stage two or stage three, at which point they bail out. Very few people actually make it all the way through the stages of family life and experience community on the other side. Like I said before, quoting Joseph Hellerman, people who stay grow, but people who do not stay do not grow. Uh, you know, when people come to me and they're like, Dan, like, Park Hills Church is the greatest church that I've ever been to, and it is so much better than all of the other churches that I have ever been to. This is amazing. I'm usually like, oh my gosh, I am so nervous. And usually I either think to myself, or if I'm so bold, I say, give us enough time and we will let you down too. Like, this should be the slogan of Park Hills Church. Give us enough time and we will let you down too. See, Church is messy and imperfect because people are messy and imperfect. This is not an institution. This is a family. And there are family dynamics and personalities and that weird uncle that just says the weirdest things because we are family and it is messy. Jean Venier writes this, almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It, it seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at the least, the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through the second period, they will come to the third phase where they can grow together toward something more beautiful. So let me share just a, a bit of vulnerability of how these five stages have worked its way into the life of the community that I've been a part of for the last few years. 
So five years ago, we started as a group of a, young, a bunch of young, unmarried, single people with, without a care in the world. Um, and soon enough, we became good friends. We read the Bible together. Many people, it was their first time reading through the Bible as a whole. Uh, we pra- put into practice that week's teaching. We practiced Sabbath. We followed to Jesus. One person just took it to another level and gave away a really expensive camera. And, and what happened is we began to share our stories and our struggles. One night, we even hung string lights in my small apartment, and we shared our testimonies and got all, like, sentimental and, and uh, you know, whatever. And we, we shared our stories. And soon enough, we were growing so big because people just kept inviting their friends. And we were like, stop inviting your friends. We don't have any more room. Uh, But soon enough, we moved to the second stage, which is apathy. And we became lax in our practices. We started seeing people come less and less. Some people, you know, were somewhat engaged in the practices. Others were a little less engaged. Others were totally disengaged. And um, we were going through the motions. And yes, if you can believe it, we even had conflict. I'm sure I was even a part of that at some some time. Some people left. Uh, They expected to find their best friends, and yet, well, they got us. Uh, And um, we had breakups in our community that left some people wondering, are we going to stay? Or or is there the other person in the couple going to stay? And we had to, like, work through that. But eventually, we worked through that and came to a place of acceptance. Um, The death of a dad rallied our group together like we never imagined. The birth of a child bonded us to become a family. Meals together brought us together through participation. We danced at weddings together. We cried together. Health problems and setbacks taught us how to pray and care for one another. We threw parties when people got engaged. We had fires and found every excuse we could possible to celebrate with food. We even had a summer camp in the backyard. As weird as that is, it was beautiful. And we moved toward health. We chose to stay, to work through our struggles and commit to each other as family. And we came out the other side, people of love. It took years and a lot of hard work, but it formed us. And here's one of my journal entries um, after reflecting on leading that community for five years. I titled it, My Honest Thoughts After Leading Our Community. I wrote, not all of us will make it through the other side of the journey of faith. And none of us is going to make it out the same. Some may come out stronger, deeper, and more committed to the way and to each other, but some may count the cost and give up. For others, the way ahead is too far and costly. The faith of some may flicker out. Some may betray the commitment of love we made together. Some may choose the broad way leading to autonomous freedom, and yet others may find the choice to forgive, serve, and love too great. However, in my experience, most will choose a faith without love, without heartache, a faith untried, unhindered by others, and a faith without sacrifice. But there are those beautiful souls who have made it, who have been formed by the sacrifice, the hurt, the betrayal, and the choice to stay. They have become people of love, not by mere sentiment and happy times. Rather, they are formed each time they chose to love, to pray, and bless those who hurt them. They chose to stay, to bear one another's burdens, to heal, and to forgive one another. As the master of the way less traveled reminds us, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. My point is simple. Community takes time and intentionality. And here's a scenario that I've seen far too often in my years of ministry. A couple starts attending a community and everyone likes them. They fit in really well. Uh, they, They jive with the other people. Maybe friendships begin to form. And so for about a year, they show up from anywhere from a third to a half of the time, they're kind of flaky, which is the number one killer of community. And when they do show up, 
they realized they missed some big development in the life of the community. Somebody, you know, really went through something. There was a breakthrough in the group. We, we went somewhere else in the Bible reading um, together and there was an announcement or something and they weren't there. And this couple isn't really concerned about intentionality either. They, when they're asked, did you do the reading or how's the way of life going? They're like, oh, I didn't really get around to the reading and I'm not really, you know, tracking with the way of life. And about a year goes on, and by this time, the honeymoon phase has totally worn off. And as the group is going around in a circle, the couple stands up and says, you know, we're moving on. We've, we were looking for community, and this isn't it, and we're just moving on. We were hoping to find community, and we didn't. And I think to myself, of course you didn't. What were you expecting without any time or intentionality or work that somehow your ideal, imaginized version of community would just fall out of the sky? Of course, that is not how relationships work. That's not how marriage works. That's not how relationships work. And that is not how community works. See, I think in our culture, we're used to going from church to church in search of the ideal community. But we need to learn the beautiful art of staying. You know, there's uh, this phrase called um, uh, stability. And St. Benedict called stability the spiritual skill of staying put somewhere to get somewhere. We need to recapture this beautiful practice in our time. See, one of the first things a Benedictine monk would do when they joined a a monastery of other monks is they would take a vow of stability. Here's an example of a a modern vow of stability. They commit by saying, we vow to remain all our life with this local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of the ideal situation. It goes on. But Benedictine monks would stay and practice stability by living in community for their life. And I think we have a great deal to learn from this. And if you're nervous, we're not going to get you to take a vow of stability or celibacy. So you are released. But there is something beautiful and profound to staying put and sticking it out through the thick and thin. As I said before, those who stay grow and those who do not stay do not grow. Again, to quote Joseph Hellerman, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together, or we do not grow much at all. So what would our church look like if we actually recapture Jesus' view of authentic Christian community? What if we actually took up the banner of what it meant to be brothers and sisters in Christ and follow Jesus as family? What if we as a church centered around these three priorities, church as family, church as a way of life, and church around a table? What if we gathered in homes each week to share not only meals, but our lives with one another? What if we devoted ourselves to a way of life? Again, more on that next week. And what if we became people of love by sticking it out when things get hard? What would happen if we committed ourselves to this way of life for the next 10 or 20 years? I dare us to find out. Let's pray. Spirit, we know that where two or three are gathered, you are there in our midst. And there's something about gathering that makes this a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus, we know that your call is hard and your way is tough, but we know that it leads to life. And so God, I pray blessing over this community that we would follow you as family, through thick and thin, from the good times and the bad, I pray that we would commit 
to the flourishing of both this community and the kingdom of God on earth here in Surrey as it is in heaven. So God, I pray over us this morning that we would follow you and we would experience life and life to the full. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.